0: So what I'm going to do is try to kind of capsule it right at, front, at the front end, just so you don't think I'm trying to weasel out, and then kind of step back and put it into a context. And then I look forward to having uh, having a conversation with uh, with all of you. Just unfortunately, it won't be uh, won't be uh, in, in person. Um, a lot of people watch the uh, some of the averages that are out there, average of the national polls. There's one real clear politics does one. Uh, Nate Silver's five. 538. Um, and and there's, there's something good about that because there's a natural tendency that a lot of people have to look for a poll that tells them what they want to hear. And that obviously becomes most accurate poll And any poll that tells them anything differently is obviously methodologically flawed. So by looking at the averages, it kind of keeps you from doing that kind of cherry picking. But the problem, I think, is that it treats all of these uh, these polls as sort of commodities and more or less uh, certainly the real clear one um, treats them all evenly when the fact is that these averages or take the real clear politics. It includes all the just really first class, very sophisticated surveys. And it includes some fairly mediocre ones. And it includes some that would probably be best utilized lining hamster cages or bird cages. They're really not very good. And to kind of treat them all equally. What I sort of do is I have uh, about eight or nine national polls that are all live telephone interview not robo not online and then there are a couple of the onlines that are very very good there's uh Uh, Pew Research Center does a really good job. The Associated Press works with the uh, National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. Those are the two online polls that I think are of comparable quality with say the ABC Washington Post or the NBC Wall Street Journal or the CNN or Fox, or a couple of the other uh, high quality polls that are out there. And right now the higher quality polls are showing basically this is a nine or a 10 point race and this is very very different from where it was uh, just as recently as um, seven or eight months ago when the race was more like four five six and had been kind of averaging there ever since biden had come in but now it's about nine or ten which is I think given the sort of hyper-partisan environment that we have today, uh, where you know, there are people in each party that there is little or nothing that a leader of the other party could possibly do right in their minds. So it's created a high floor and a low ceiling for the parties so that it's really hard to get and sustain a, a double-digit lead for very long in a presidential race You know, in this new partisanship that we've had for the last 20, 30 years. Uh, but we know that the uh, uh, national polls, and I'm going to be using a lot of polls in the next few minutes. And and one of the things, actually, let me finish capsulizing it, then I'll then I'll do the polls. Uh, obviously, the uh, the national polls or or the national popular vote in five dollars will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks because that's not how we decide who wins our presidential elections. Uh, it is the the electoral college. And when you sort of walk through the math here, uh, Hillary Clinton carried 20 states with 232 electoral votes. So 20 states, 232 electoral votes, and that's 38 short of the 270 that you need to win. Um, And Donald Trump won 30 states with uh, 306. So he had 36 more than he needed. But the election, as you all know, the election turned effectively on three states that voted in a very different way than they had in recent years. Uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania had gone Democratic six, Presidential elections in a row. The last Democrat to lose a presidential race in uh, in Michigan or Pennsylvania prior to uh, uh, 2016 was Michael Dukakis in 1988. Uh, Wisconsin, the last time it went Democratic, was uh, one time further seven t- elections ago, back with uh, Walter Mondale. Lost it in 1984. So these were states that had gone Democratic fairly reliably. You know, Pennsylvania's always closely fought, but Democrats had been winning. But these three states, Michigan, uh, Donald Trump ended up winning by two-tenths of one percentage point, two-tenths of a point. And Wisconsin and Pennsylvania by seven and eight-tenths of a percentage point. So you had an election with 137 million people voting nationally. And it was effectively decided by 78,000 votes in three states. Well, we, we're everyone's pretty much focusing on six battleground states. And the, you know, I kind of divided up the Frost Belt Division and the Sun Belt Division. And the Frost Belt Division are those three states that effectively decided it last time. And we're Michigan, for example, um, right now, um, you know, Michigan is, Biden is ahead by mm, six, seven, eight, Percentage point, something like that. It's a, it's a pretty good size lead, and it, it's fairly stable at this point. Uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, you have uh, Joe Biden is ahead by hmm, four, five, six, right around in there pretty steadily. And Wisconsin by um, it kind of straddles both of those as low as four, as high as seven or eight for most of the polling that we're seeing public and and, and private. But for those three states alone, the three states that Clinton lost by less than eight tenths of a percentage point uh, that, you know, and that uh, that. Uh, Biden is ahead by somewhere between say four and eight percentage points. Just those three states would get Biden to 278 electoral votes. So he can win without Arizona, without Florida, without North Carolina, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio, Texas, that, that Biden can win by with just those three. And in those, he's got a pretty, pretty good size lead. So that's uh, that's 278 electoral votes. Now the other three of the top battleground states are Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. And Arizona, um, Biden has a, generally is ahead but it's a smaller margin, like under four points. Most of the polling we're seeing um, in Florida, Biden, it, that was the state where President Trump was doing pretty well, very well in really until about September. And that's when we started seeing kind of the momentum shift over. And now Joe Biden t- uh, typically has a a low single digit lead there. So it's, I mean, it's just barely a lead, but he is running a bit ahead there. And the same thing in North Carolina where it had been holding back. It had been, Arizona had been a better state for Biden than these other two, uh, but Biden—but uh, Biden's ahead by generally like one, two, three points, something like that in, in North Carolina. So those would add up if, you know, if uh, uh, Biden were able to, uh, to win all three of those, Those would add up to 333 with the ones before. But there is an extended battlefield, and it's four more states that uh, three of them are within two points, three percentage points, and one of them just a little bit further back. But these are very, very hotly contested. And again, they're all four states that President Trump carried last time. Uh, Georgia, which has been sort of gradually, you know, moving from the Republican column. And and I, I should stop and say there's a... Uh, there's a whole series of sunbelt states, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, that are sort of following Virginia, uh, where Virginia had been red Republican, and then was moving over into purple swing, and then now has pretty much gone into blue Democratic. These other states are sort of in the process of a transition. And what's happening is, yes, there's a, you know, substantial minority vote in each of these, but where the real change has happened in the last 10-15 10-15 years, is lots of people moving in from other parts of the country, and they're tending to be college-educated suburban voters, and they tend, you know, because they're coming in from other places, they're changing, for example, the southern or the Tex- the Texan voting behavior in Texas, or southern in Georgia and North Carolina. So we're seeing some states that are going through some rapid transitions, and it's the, it's the suburbs that are really doing it. In fact, if you look at how Democrats Democrats won their majority in the House of Representatives in 2018, it was winning suburbs outside of Atlanta or Dallas, Houston, Kansas City, Oklahoma City, Richmond, Virginia, as well as lots of places that are um, not so much in the Sun Belt. But are in Georgia, it's a pretty much a tied race or Biden up by a point or two, but it's uh, very, very, very close. And I know a lot of people say, gosh, how could Georgia be that that close? But remember to how close Stacy Abrams came in uh, 2018 within just an eyelash of winning the governorship in Georgia. That state's really changing. It's the suburbs that are driving it. Iowa is a state that used to be a swing state, and then it was kind of moving over in the Republican side for a while. It's kind of shifted back And right now, it's somewhere between even and Biden up by three, four, something like that, where it's not secure at all in the Biden camp. But it's one where he seems to have a little bit uh, of, of an advantage. Ohio is one. There was a classic swing state, and it just started really moving Republican. Well, it's kind of nudged back and now uh, President Trump generally has a lead in Ohio, but it's only a couple points. It's not much at all, and, and at that point, it gets to, you know, turn out and things like that, and then a little bit further back is Texas, and you'll find uh, polls that have, uh, you know, most will kind of fall into the uh, Trump President Trump ahead by, you know, one, two, three, four points, something like that, occasionally one up to six or seven, uh, something like that. But it's it's where, but it's very, very competitive. The state's changing, and where Democrats actually are hotly contesting this control of the state house representatives, which would be really, really important for uh for state uh, for for redistricting purposes, with all the lines getting cut up next next year, um, switching over to over to the U.S. Senate, and I'm just capsuling it and kind of coming back. In the Senate, uh, this started a year and a half ago. This looked like it was going to be kind of a ho hum Senate cycle, with you know one side picking up a seat or two, or the other, you know, just not not a whole lot. But gradually, we've started seeing real change. And we've, uh, at the Cook Political Report, we do, you know, ratings of lean Republican, lean Democrat, likely Republican, likely Democrat, solid Republican, solid Democrat, and toss-up. And we've had 10... Uh, we've had 12 rating changes in the Senate since uh, since January, since the beginning of January, and 10 of those ratings had been sort of away from the Republican side going in the, in the general direction of the Democratic side, and only two have come back uh, moving the other way. But where um, it's gone from a ho-hum cycle to right now, if Republicans are very, the Senate split 53 Republicans, 47 Democrats, if Republicans are very, very lucky. They can keep their losses down to just a seat or two that would get them to 51 or 52. But that is becoming less and less and less likely right now. And with the odds are a lot higher that Democrats are going to pick up, you know, three that would make the Senate 50-50 and the new vice president, which, you know, I'm reasonably sure it's going to be Kamala Harris would break the tie or four or five that would get to Democrats to 51 or 52. But this is not, if you were kind of to plot out the chances for the U.S. Senate, it's not a bell curve. It's not symmetrical. There's a lot more of a downside risk for Republicans. And we're, they've got basically, Republicans have 12 seats in jeopardy. Democrats only have two. But Republicans have nine seats that are in extreme jeopardy versus one for Democrats. It's actually not in Georgia. It's basically gone in Alabama, but you've got nine Republican seats that are very, well, basically either, either toss up or less. And, um, where they've got seats in, uh, you know, Colorado and Arizona that look like they're pretty much gone for them and some others that are looking very, very tough. But I'll get I'll get into those in a minute. In the House of Representatives, uh, remember, keep in mind that Democrats picked up 40 seats last time. And normally, if a party loses 40 seats in one election, they generally pick some of them back up the next time. And, um, you know, we didn't think it was likely that Republicans would get uh, 17 seats that they would need net to get a control of the House Representatives. But right now it looks like they're just as likely to lose more than more than 10 seats than less than 10 seats. We're kind of putting it at a, a net gain for Democrats, most likely of between five seats and, and 15 seats. But again, we're seeing some dynamics where this is not symmetrical and there is more of a downside. If this is not going to be between 5 and 15 seats, gain for Democrats, it's a lot more likely to be a bigger gain for Democrats than that, than, than a less one. Um, this is an off cycle for governorships. There are only like 11 of them up this time. Only two of them right now are hotly contested in Montana and Missouri. Uh, and there was one in North Carolina, but it's now, you know, pretty safely in Democratic hands. But another one that gets very, very little attention is, are the state legislative races? Because you've got a uh, Uh, state legislative chambers in 86 out of the 99 state legislative chambers around the country are up this time. And people forget that 80 percent of the state house seats in the country are up every every two years. So we've got 80 percent of the state house seats up. And the thing that's important to remember is this is a you know, it's it's terrible for a party to have a bad year anytime. But the worst kind of year is if you have a bad year that ends in zero because that's the year of the census, the zero year. And the next year is when they do redistricting, they redraw the lines for congressional district, state legislative districts. So when you have a really bad election that ends in a zero, that can, and lose a bunch of state legislative chambers, that can mean you're fighting uphill for the rest, you know, for the next decade. And we Republicans right now have 14 state legislative seats in uh, chambers in jeopardy, and Democrats only have five that are in jeopardy. So that has huge, huge consequences in terms of redistricting. Otherwise, we probably re- really wouldn't be talking about it. Now, before I dive full into the presidential race, um, what I want to uh, just say something about sort of polls and electoral college and inversions and partisanship, because there is every time I speak, uh, people or talk to people about politics, somebody invariably says, "Why do you keep citing polling data? Because the polls were all wrong. The polls all said that Hillary Clinton would be elected president, and you know I, I sort of beg to differ." that um, you didn't see polls that showed that uh, Democrats were, that that Hillary Clinton was going to win the Electoral College. What you saw were national polls showing her ahead and likely to win the national popular vote. National polls, with the exception of one that I think is, I don't really approve of, uh, don't do the Electoral College. They don't even break it out by state. That's not what they do. And if you walked into election day, I mean, if you woke up the morning of the, of the 2016 election, and if you looked at real clear politics, for example, you would have seen that Hillary Clinton was averaging 47%, and Donald Trump was averaging 40, 44%. So 47, 44. And when all the votes were counted, you know what the final result was? Clinton, 48, Trump, 46 Now I'm sorry, but the difference between 47 to 44 and 48, 46 isn't that much. I mean, Hillary picked up one point and Trump picked up two points. And you know, so that they weren't as off as you think. And I'll talk about state polls in just a second. But where people were sort of assuming that whoever won the popular vote would probably won the electoral college. Well, the thing is that had happened a lot. I mean, we had had a, a um, uh, inversion back in 1876 when Samuel Tilden won the popular vote and Rutherford B. Hayes won the Electoral College and another one a dozen years later when Grover Cleveland won the popular vote and Benjamin Harrison uh, won the uh, electoral college. And then it didn't happen again for twelve for 112 years. And during that time, we had lots and lots of close races. You know, 1948, Truman Dewey, 1960, Kennedy Nixon, 1968, Nixon, Hubert Humphrey, uh, George Wallace, 1976, Carter Ford, 1992, Clinton, George H.W. Bush. I mean, we've had close races before, but they've been going the same way—the Electoral College and the popular vote going the same, the same direction. And, and and then in 2000, when we did have finally have an inversion for the first time since 1888, yes, Al Gore won the popular vote, but he only won it by about a half a percentage point a little over a half million votes. And George W. Bush didn't win the Electoral College, but he won it by virtue of a 537-vote victory in Florida, and that my Democratic friends would say were actually a 5-4 decision of the Supreme Court. But the thing about it is one just barely won the Electoral College, one just barely won or the popular vote, the other just barely won the Electoral College, that they were you know, people looked at it like it was a once every century statistical fluke, And, and it sort of didn't really dawn on a lot of people that something was going on. Now, 2000 and, um, uh, 2004, the very next election, was really close between George W. Bush and John Kerry, but, and remember the morning of the, that election, uh, some of the early exit polls suggested that John Kerry might win, but the popular vote and electoral college vote went the same way. And of course, with Obama's two victories in 2008 and 12, they went the same way. But on election night like 2016, we discovered that the lines crossed again. And what was happening that I think we didn't fully appreciate till that night was that that Republican votes are just more efficiently allocated around the country that Hillary Clinton, when she's winning California by a 4.3 million vote margin, you know, where so 4.3 million minus one votes are wasted. You don't get bonus electoral votes for running up the score, or 1.7 million in New York State, or 950,000 in Illinois. And conversely, Republicans, the states that they win by big percentages, typically are small, medium-sized states. And the states, the big states that Republicans win, they tend to win them by smaller margins and so that's why we now believe given the current you know dynamics of american politics that a democrat probably needs to be ahead by 3 or 4 percentage points before it's likely to translate you know, into an electoral college uh, victory for them. But we have learned, you know, you've got to pay much more attention to the individual states. And we're watching the news organizations, the major news organizations do a heck of a lot more polling in the state level. And so we're a little less dependent upon some of the local pollsters. And, you know, some of them are pretty good and some of them are not so good and polling all the way to the end. Now, the thing is most of the state polls were fine. You know, about 47 states went exactly the way we thought. I mean, our ratings, the Cook Cookbook Report ratings, we had 45 states rated as leaning likely solid Republican that did go Republican or leaning likely solid Democrat that did go Democrat. We had two states that we had rated as toss-ups, Florida and North Carolina, for obvious reasons. But we were wrong on three. We had three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, that we had as leaning Democrat, but As I said earlier, and we all know that President Trump ended up winning very, very, very narrowly. But the state polls in those states were really, really, really wrong. And so after the election was over, the professional organization that sort of of four pollsters, the American Association for Public Opinion Research, they did a really deep dive where they took apart both a lot of the national and the state level polls. And they actually looked at who the people were that were interviewed, and ran those by the state voter files where you could tell who did and who didn't vote. And they found not this shy Trump voter thing that a lot of people are talking about, that, well, there are people that were going to vote for Donald Trump, but were wouldn't tell the pollsters. They lied to the pollsters. They wouldn't tell the pollsters. There really wasn't much of that, and probably not much more than somebody that was going to vote for Hillary Clinton living in a heavily Republican area that may not have wanted to shout that from their rooftops either. But what they found was there was an ever so slight but systemic undersampling, underrepresentation, uh, representation of non-college whites in the, in the sample and a little bit too many uh, college-educated whites. Now there were all kinds of people that voted for Donald Trump, and you could find, you know, uh, all kinds of level, races and levels of educational attainment, and I'm sure you could find an African American or Latino or Hispanic uh, with, uh, you know, two PhDs that voted for Donald Trump. But his core strongest group was non-college whites, whites with less than a four-year college degree, and specifically non-college white men. That was his strongest group. So anything that undersamples that group is going to understate where Trump's support is. Um, And after the uh, in 2018, most of the pollsters started correcting and weighting their data among whites to, to fix that, and we think that the polling back is back in good is, is in good shape. But two other things that happened, in those three states specifically, there are more non-college whites than in many other states. But one of the things I noticed during the primaries in 2016 was where where Trump did the best was working class whites in areas that were like large, large manufacturing sort of more industrial places that over the last 40 or 50 years had had an unusually large number of sort of high uh, high-end blue-collar jobs the kind that would lift people up into or keep them into the middle class that's where you had the the Trump message really resonated and guess what disproportionately they were in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And the final thing is we know from the exit polls that the people that made their minds up early tended to go more for Clinton. But the people that made their minds up towards the end of the campaign, they broke more towards towards Trump. And that those three states had and they've changed election laws have changed a little bit. But those three states had almost the vast majority of their votes were on election day. There was very little early votings or vote by mail in those states back in 2016. And as a result, they would be more likely to pop towards Trump at the end uh, after a lot of the polling had taken place. So the polling wasn't nearly as bad as people think it was. It was actually pretty good, but it was a confusion with the electoral. College and not realizing that, wait a minute, we've seen some changes in voting patterns that these are not quite as synchronized as they used to be. The other thing, real quick, and then get, get deep into this, and that is partisanship. And that we're seeing more hyperpartisanship partisanship than we've ever seen before, fewer people splitting their tickets, voting for a Democrat for one office and a Republican for the other. And in fact, in 2016, it was the first election since we started the direct election of U.S. senators in 1914 that every single U.S. Senate seat went exactly the way that state had, was going in the most recent, or went in the most recent presidential election, every single one of them. And the fact is the Pew Research Center has found that since 1980, there have been 137, 139 um, 139 US Senate races and 122 out of 139 went the same way that state had gone in the, in the presidential race. Uh, so that's really um, that's that's that you know that tells you this and that that it's 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 more just that um, well you've seen the negative partisanship a group of people on each side that hate the leaders of the other party even more than they like their own leaders but what that's done is it's changed things where it's created floors and ceilings as I mentioned okay let's get into this the thing about it is people tend to fight the last war I mean just as generals fight the last war. People in politics, they tend to wage the last campaign. And the thing is they tend to look at 2020 through the prism of 2016, when they're completely different kinds of elections. When no, when neither candidate for president is an incumbent, that's a choice election where people are choosing between two candidates. Who do they like best? Who do they identify with? The pros and cons of each. But when you have an incumbent, that is a referendum up or down on the incumbent. It is, do you want to renew that president's contract for another four years? Yes or no? That is a totally different dynamic than in a choice election. And we know that the best way to determine how a president is going to do for re-election is to look at the job approval rating. And if you look in the you know post-war era, basically Every, each of the five presidents in the last Gallup poll going into Election Day that had job approval ratings of 50 or higher, every single one of them won. And both of the presidents that had job approval ratings below 40 percent, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, both of them lost. And But there was one that was in the tw- twilight zone in between, and that was George W. Bush. And you remember he had been up at 90 and in the 80s and 70s, immediately after 9-11. But as the war in Iraq started getting more problematic, his numbers started coming back down. And in the last job, uh, last Gallup poll before the election, he had, it was at 48%. And on election day, remember we talked about John Kerry, George W. Bush, really, really, really close. So somewhere in the 40s is that magic point. Well, the thing is, so where is President Trump? Well, if you looked at his first, and just using Gallup's, because we want to use apples and apples here, if you looked at his first year in office, President Trump averaged for the entire year a 38% job approval rating, 38%. That is the lowest job approval rating for any elected president in the post-war era for their first year in office, 38%. Okay, what about the second year in office? It went up two points to 40%. And that was the lowest second year of any elected president in post-World War II history. Okay, what about for the third year, basically 2019? It went up two more points to 42%. It wasn't the lowest third year for any president in post-war history because Jimmy Carter had come in underneath at 37, but it was the second lowest. And so you see, and he's averaged 41 percent for his entire presidency. The last Gallup poll had it at 43 percent. And the point is, you can't, you know, you can't expect to get reelected president if your job approval ratings have been that low. But the thing is, people made their minds up very, very early about Donald Trump. In many cases, before he even took the oath of office, and very few of them have changed their minds. 75 percent of voters either strongly approve or strongly disapprove of him. His his job approval rating usually is about ninety percent among Republicans. The last Gallup was ninety-four percent, and among Democrats, it's usually in single digits. The last Gallup was four percent, and then the third, you know, the independents are generally in the thirties. But people made their minds up very, very, very early, and it hasn't fluctuated much. That the highest job approval rating in the Gallup poll that that uh, that that President Trump has received was forty-nine percent. The highest Fox News poll was 48%. The highest NBC Wall Street Journal poll, 47%. And the others were like 45, 44. The thing is, and, and when you think about it, wait a minute, we had, for example, between last September and this February, six consecutive months of 50-year of, of, of low unemployment and his numbers never got to fifty percent in a single major national poll. But on the other hand, really bad things might happen. I mean, for example, when your lawyer, when a lawyer comes out that your lawyer pay, has paid off a porn star, one hundred thirty thousand dollars to keep, keep quiet about something, that would normally torpedo a president, right? didn't even budge. That, that the the views are so strongly held and that that he just has had a very, if he were a stock, a very, very, very narrow trading range. Those are the kind of, you know, basically you could sort of boil down the electorate. 40 to 42 percent are absolutely locked in for President Trump. They will be with him no matter what, 40, 42 percent. I call those the they're the Trump lovers. And then on the other side, you've got between 45 and 49, or 45 and 50, let's say, that are the Trump loathers. They will never vote for him in a million years. And then you've got the in-betweeners. And, and that group was largely, they were sort of keeping, I mean, they, were, they had mixed views, to be perfectly honest. They would be, you know, going into the pandemic, before the pandemic, they this group tended to look at They looked at the economy and they thought the economy is doing great, and they gave President Trump all the credit in the world for that economy. But a lot of those same people were looking over and they had questions about his character, about him as a person, about his truthfulness, about uh, can we believe what he says? Why won't he listen to experts, generals or admirals, diplomats, whatever? I mean, just really in his leadership style. But as long as the economy was really, really good, it was keeping those people in the middle. And 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 so so when Biden got in the race in April of last year, as I said a little while ago, he was averaging like a four to six point lead where it was steady, but it was a competitive race. And President Trump was still within striking distance, keeping in mind that a Democrat probably needs to be winning nationally by three or four percentage points, because when he was only four, five, six points ahead, Biden, that that would translate in the like the big three states of so Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania to even to a head by one, two, three, but I mean, really, really close and generally even at best, but generally a little bit behind in the Arizonas, Floridas, or particularly Florida and and North Carolina. So, but then what happened was as the coronavirus hit, and, and it weighed, I mean, for, for a while it held it, it hung in there. I mean, the voters didn't abandon. And then you started seeing the president's numbers kind of job approval ratings kind of fluctuate, kind of flutter in May. And then you started seeing the gap between Biden and and, and 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 President Trump widened, widened, widening, you know, eight points, 10. It was sort of 10 to 12 through uh, by the end of July, middle to end of July. Then we had the conventions. It kind of narrowed back so that going into the first debate, the president was about eight points behind. Now, Eight points behind is a lot worse than four to six because that means you start having real leads in plenty of states that have uh, that can give you 270 electoral votes. And then you had that first debate. And I think with these voters in the middle, I think that as the pandemic was wearing on and they became more and more nervous about how he was handling it and that he seemed to be kind of cavalier about it, not taking it seriously or had, had to, the wrong view, I think you started hearing and and some of the weird things, calling it a hoax and all this, I think you started seeing people starting to turn the volume down on the president. And they just, I mean, May, June, July, they started turning the volume down. And then after that first debate, boom, I think they hit the mute button. And I don't think they're hearing a word he says right now. And now we, you know, we could be wrong. but. This race looks pretty, pretty ugly for, for the president. And when you consider that he's being outspent uh, so far on television, as of uh, like two days ago, uh, Biden had spent $576 million on television advertising, $576 million. President Trump had spent $341 million. So, in other words, Biden has outspent him, the president, by a $231 million margin. At the end of June, I mean, end of September, the president's campaign in the, in the Republican National Committee had $61 million cash on hand the Biden campaign had $177 million. You remember the spring and the other summer? The president's campaign had all the money in the world, and they invested it in a ground game and organizing and voter registration and all that. But they based that spending based on revenue assumptions that when his numbers started going down, poll numbers started going down, the money started drying up. And so now they did. They, they 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 invested the money in the ground game, which was a, a smart thing to do, assuming their fundraising would hold up and it hasn't. And so here we are, you've got 40 something percent of the, uh, um, you've had uh, 57 million people have voted already. The president's basically nine, 10 points ahead. He's being outspent by a big margin and he's behind in enough states to give Pretty uh, give Joe Biden a fairly a fairly steady lead, and that this is not where the the Hillary Clinton race was. And it's one last thing: keep in mind that that race in 2016 it was between the Republican nominee with the highest unfavorable ratings in the history of modern of, of polling up against a Democrat with the highest negative ratings in the history of polling, and that one of them was going to win no matter what, and contrast that with the current situation where Joe Biden isn't exactly beloved, but just about every poll you could find is favorables or, high, or higher than his unfavorables, while President Trump is way upside down and Hillary Clinton was way upside down. Just a completely different, different situation here. So this is looking like a, a pretty tough, tough race um, uh, year for, for Republicans. Um, uh, this this could be, we're looking at the potential for some pretty significant uh, uh, Republican losses in the Senate as well. And this is really rare because we see these wave elections, um, you know, used to be about once a decade. They've started appearing a little bit more often now, but they're almost always in midterm elections. And in my lifetime, we've only seen two wave elections in presidential years, and one was in 1964, and I was 11 years old and in Boy Scouts and not really paying much attention to politics. And the other was in 1980, that Reagan, Reagan uh, when, when Ronald Reagan beat President Carter by a 10 point margin. And some of you probably remember that, uh, that night, but we're the first Democrat lost, Senator lost, about 6.30 in the evening, Birch Bay, Indiana has one of the two states that closed their polls earliest. Democrats lost Birch Bay at 6.30 in the evening. Democrats effectively lost a Senate seat every 30 minutes for the next six hours. That's what happens. Or if you notice, you know, that's what can happen in these wave years. Or you saw what happened to Democrats in 2010 and 2014, what happened to Republicans in 2006, and to a certain extent in the House in 2018. It's where, you know, Weak candidates in some cases beat strong candidates and districts that normally vote this way go the other way. You sort of see unnatural things happen in these wave elections. And we're seeing a lot of evidence that this has turned into one of those. So let me bring Clark back because I know I've talked way too long, but hopefully we still have some time. We could do some uh, uh, questions or comments or anything. And I apologize, Clark, for talking longer than I supposed to. But um, <laughs> believe it or not, I cut a whole lot out to get into this.
1: <laughs> no, Charlie, that was terrific. What a tour de force. And it was so comprehensive. Thank you so much. Well, as you can imagine, there are lots of questions, some of which you already covered. But let me just see if I can get in a couple quickly. And if we go a few minutes over, everybody will understand. So one question I thought was a very good one, and that is, can you – it's clear that, you know, that you view a Biden victory as, as likely, even a large one. So this question is, can you comment on the implications of the unprecedented surge of mail-in voting, especially by Democrats? Some analysts worry that since mail-in results will not be countered in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin and other swing states on election night, Trump may appear ahead, even though he will lose when all the votes are counted, a so-called red mirage, which would enable Trump's narrative about the election being stolen and can lead to political violence.
0: You know, there's, that's a legitimate concern that, um, and that a lot of states, I mean, the, the problem is with, with that theory is that, that we have 50 state election laws and each state's different. And even in some states, it varies from county to county. So, in some places, the early vote isn't counted in immediately, and some it is, and some it depends on where. I mean, so there, there's really not, and because a lot of states have changed their procedure where there were states that couldn't start looking at the couldn't start uh, uh, you know opening and processing the ballots until election day morning. There's some where you can't till, till election polls close, but there are a lot of states that have started, they've they've changed their procedures, so they are already processing these things. So the question is how close is it going to be? Now if you look at the um um what was I gonna say um that on election night, what I would look for, I mean, if you you basically take the most Republican states in the country, you know, Idaho over here, and the most Democrat, Rhode Island, Massachusetts over here, and and of course, the tipping point states are likely to be Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, those are the ones that are likely to kind of put somebody over, over 270. But the thing is that I think we there will be clues earlier in the evening. I mean, yes, we didn't find out Michigan, Pennsylvania. They were like one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. I'm looking for my notes where I have a, a, I have a, a chart where uh, yeah, Pennsylvania wasn't declared till one thirty-five in the morning for in 2016, and Wisconsin till two twenty-nine, and Michigan was a week or two later. Okay, so there those are those were slow then, even without changes in the voting process, but for um, what I would look at at like nine o'clock, Texas will will close uh, at nine o'clock was when the Associated Press called Texas last time. And that's a state where the president's been one, two, three, four, five points ahead. If you see him ahead by four five or more, then, hey, that's a good sign for him. If he's losing Texas, you can put your pajamas on because the election's <laughs> over. Same thing for North Carolina, Ohio. Georgia, Florida, all of these are pretty, are pretty, you know, are, are called last time before, which was a close election, uh, before midnight. I think Iowa was a couple of minutes after midnight. So we, and the thing is, all of these are states, every one of these is a state that the president has to win. I mean, if he gets, loses Texas, he's out. If he loses Florida, he's out. If he loses Georgia, he's out. If he loses North Carolina, he's, I mean, He's got to make it through all of these to get to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania to be the tipping point. And he's not doing very well there. So I think I, we, I don't, we, we may well not have a, a de- declaration on election night, but I think we're going to have a fairly decent idea. This, the, you know, who's likely to be the next president, uh, or if, if the president's just going to be out of the, out of the running. And right now, this is not a close race. I mean, this is We're this is at the margin that 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 Reagan Clinton ended up with right where we are right now. So it's got to change a whole lot to get this trajectory to change. And with more and more votes already done, fewer, fewer days and getting outspent and no more debates.
1: It can happen, Mm -hmm. but not very likely. So a couple more quick ones. So if you're Joe Biden and you're in the position he's in and the candidate's most precious commodity is time, do you go to Texas? Do you go to Ohio? Do you, you know, go to Georgia, et cetera? I,
0: I would spend some money. I'd spend, well, the thing is, the, the Clinton campaign made a horrific mistake where they were going for the big win. And they were dabbling in Arizona and Georgia, two states that, yes, they were moving away from the Republican Party, but they weren't ripe yet and doing that at the expense of Michigan and Wisconsin. And, you know, Wisconsin, she didn't step foot in the state between Labor Day and election day. There effectively was no Clinton campaign for all intents and purposes to get the vote, the urban vote out in Detroit and Milwaukee, to get the kids out in Ann Arbor and Lansing and Madison. So that just there being in in Pennsylvania, they did spend a ton of money in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia suburbs and Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh suburbs. And, and Hillary Clinton did come out of Philadelphia, the city, with a 450,000 vote margin. But they basically gave forfeited the center and across the top thinking, well, there are not that many people that live there and we can win enough. Well, guess what? I mean, you had a dozen counties that gave Trump seventy percent of the vote or more. Three gave him eighty percent of the vote or more. And a lot of these more small town rural uh, 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 counties around the country turned out at levels that were absolutely unprecedented. They broke the models, and you know. But so much. I mean, I think fully half of that election was that Hillary Clinton had just accumulated a lot of baggage over the years. And, you know, it told Me Too, her husband, it's almost like he had a Teflon coating, but poor, I mean, but poor, poor, poor Hillary was Velcro. I mean, stuff just stuck to her. And, and, and she, you know, my my guess is despic, the word despicable, I'm sorry, deplorable, cost her a half million, million votes, you know? And, uh, but I think, I think people look back and they, they sort of assume that, that Donald Trump has this secret sauce, this magical connection, when a lot of that was really about an ambivalence where there was an intensity that was for Trump, but boy, there was a lot of ambivalence on the other side of people that, that were never gonna vote for Donald Trump, but they weren't really happy, excited about voting for Hillary Clinton. And after Billy Bush accessed Hollywood, Why did they need to vote? It was over, right? Well, I guess it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So that's why you don't do your victory lap and why I'm caught, you know, but I I would just put it at a 20% chance that President Trump somehow some ways wins the electoral college, 20%. Now I'm throwing black swans and and Don Rumsfeld's uh, unknown unknowns and known unknowns and (laughs) Chinese naval vessels you know, uh, ramming U.S. Navy. I mean, I'm throwing everything to get it to 20 and about a 40% chance of what I would call a skinny Biden win. In other words, hold on to the 20 Hillary states plus a District of Columbia, just win those three that she lost by eight tenths of a point or less. And maybe just that or maybe one more, you know, Arizona or something. That's it. And then 40% chance of a big Biden where it's maybe five or six out of the big six and maybe reaching over and grabbing a Georgia or an Iowa or an Ohio or even a Texas, something like that. That would be a big, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, but this, this turnout, it is huge. You can't project too much because you don't know of the people that are voting early and voting by mail, how many of these people that would have voted anyway, they're just voting earlier. And so you can't, you can't really project it out, but just watching, if I were a Republican, I would be very, very, very nervous. And if I were a Democrat, I would be, um, something close to cautiously optimistic, you know, but, uh, you know, but a lot of Democrats do have PTSD left over from <laughs> I, I get that, but I think you just have to look and see how unique and uh, 2016 was, and how the circumstances were just so
1: totally different than what we have right now. Terrific. Well, why don't we leave it there, Charlie? I can't thank you enough. This was absolutely superb. Thank you very much for being with us, and thanks to all of you for joining us.
0: Well, thank you all very much. It's a wonderful, wonderful church, a great place. Look forward to coming back when everything's uh, back to normal. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Charlie.